The following broadcast is released under a Creative Commons license. I believe in Jesus Christ, the only Son of God. I believe He lived and died, and that He rose again. I believe and trust in Him. Ascended into hell, Christ our living head will one day come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe and trust in Him. I will trust in my Redeemer, sing of His love that lasts. Pastor Yeshua. You've been listening to Creed by Richard Jensen from his album, Order of Service. By way of introduction, pastor is an acrostic which stands for preaching all salvation through one Redeemer. Our Redeemer, Yeshua, Jesus, is the Hebrew name for the Lord. It means Yahweh, the Lord, is salvation. Translated from Hebrew into the Greek language, the name Yeshua becomes Jesus. The English transliteration for Jesus is Jesus. This program deals with apologetics, questions on and about God, the Bible, and the Christian faith. I take questions and seek by Scripture to give answers and encouragement for everyone, including the tough-minded living in today's skeptical society. And now, let's join Pastor Yeshua. Welcome to Pastor Yeshua. In part one of this episode, we began to take time out to debunk and correct an internet article entitled, Why Jesus Wouldn't Cut It as a Pastor in Today's Evangelical Megachurches. We dismissed this title as a classic example of faulty logic and an incorrect worldview. We also began to debunk and dismiss the various logical fallacies in the article itself. In order to understand this episode and the context of the remaining portions of this podcast and its episodes, it will be necessary, if you have not already, to listen to and be familiar with the preceding episodes and their content in order to move forward with contextual discernment. That being said, let us take up where we left off in part one. As you will recall, we were debunking the first five sentences of this article wherein the author says the following, 
Quote, Jesus never could have been the pastor of a contemporary evangelical church, nor a conservative Roman Catholic bishop. Evangelicals and conservative Roman Catholics thrive on drawing distinctions between their, quote, truth, unquote, and other people's failings. Jesus, by contrast, set off an empathy time bomb that obliterates difference. Jesus' empathy bomb explodes every time a formal evangelical puts love ahead of what the Bible says. It goes off every time Pope Francis puts inclusion ahead of dogma. It goes off every time a gay couple are welcomed into a church. Jesus' time bomb explodes whenever atheists follow Jesus better than most Christians, unquote. Now, in the previous episode, we already discussed truth and failings. In this episode, we continue with, quote, drawing distinctions, unquote. Previously, we have demonstrated that truth, feelings, meaning, morals, beauty, significance, and reality are all attributes which diverge in different directions depending on which worldview one begins with and assumes. According to the three definitions of truth, one can then come to at least three conclusions drawing distinctions. If there is no universal, absolute, immutable truth anywhere, period, then by definition there would be no way to make a distinction where there is no truth to make a distinction. Distinctions would require that there first be a truth, right or wrong, which one could then draw a distinction with. If all there is is subjective relative truths, which have no objective basis for reality, then drawing distinctions would be nothing more than a shell game with infinite shells, nothing of which have anything inside. As a consequence, everyone, including this author, would be like a blind man attempting to randomly grasp any one of the empty shells in question and definitively say with certitude that their empty shell holds ultimate authority when in fact there is none. As a result, we have to first assume that there is a possibility that there is an ultimate authority for truth before we can then proceed to assume we know that truth and can therefore draw a comparison and distinction to something else which fails to be true in whole or in part. When we apply these theories of drawing distinctions to our two worldviews, what do we find? If we assume that man is the measure of all things, then we can see once again that the history of man is sadly routinely making and drawing distinctions which are wrong or in error. If we project this history forward, the only guarantee for the future is one which is uncertain at best. Given man's apparent inability due to sin, if we place man solely on his own merits, God's revelation is that man's fate is to experience the ultimate failure of separation from God and the consequence of eternal suffering. 
It is only when each man is drawn to God by God that he is given discernment via the new birth that man can then look at God's revelation via his word in context and draw proper distinctions between what God's word declares as ultimate authority of meaning, morals, beauty, significance, reality throughout all the universe, throughout all time, and what man sees as being right in his own eyes. Again, the Bible establishes and predicts that in both Proverbs chapter 14 verse 12 and Proverbs chapter 16 verse 25, quote, there is a way which seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death, unquote. Once again, because the author denies Jesus as being God, who is eternal, he makes the incorrect assertion that Jesus is a man who is finite. He has limitations and thus becomes dated with contemporary ideas according to humanistic interpretation. Forget the issue of evangelical, Roman Catholic, or other denominational titles. The issue and question again is, who is Jesus? We have already answered and debunked the idea that it is Jesus who is failing. Instead, as stated since Genesis 3, it is all mankind who is failing apart from God who never changes. Next, we have the allegation from the author that various Christian groups, quote, thrive on drawing distinctions between their truth and other people's failings, unquote. Unfortunately, the author's observation is one drawn from the well of secular humanism and Greek philosophy, not the Bible. To begin with, when we are talking about human failings as opposed to the world's definitions, God reveals in Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 12, quote, As it is written, There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth, there is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way, they are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one, unquote. So in response to the author, God reveals that all, without exception, have failed completely. There is no one who comes close to God's standard of success. None. Okay, well, what about, quote, their truth, unquote, that, quote, they, unquote, thrive on? What is that? Well, I don't know what, quote, truth, unquote, is the, quote, truth, unquote, that the author has or is ascribing to the, quote, unquote, them, but there is a truth according to God's word. Yes, you see, the propositional revelation of God's word is based upon the assertion that by God that he, not man, is the universal absolute authority for meaning, morals, beauty, truth, and reality. You, I, the author, any human may have an opinion, but that is all they are, an opinion. 
The difficulty is that for the secular humanists, the atheist, and the world, they see God's Word, the Bible, as simply another opinion, another truth, at best, because they have invested their faith and assumption on their own opinion as being the ultimate authority. It follows, then, that God and His Word must then be subjugated to their own or denied altogether. Hence, in a church which is adhering sincerely and reverently to the authority of God's Word, they can stand upon God's revelation in proper context to judge truth from error. In these cases, the church is not exercising their truth. They are careful to exercise God's truth. Further, in a genuinely spirit-filled church, the pastor, as well as the body of the church, are likewise using God's word, along with the indwelling Holy Spirit, to first and foremost examine their own quote-unquote failings. As they do so, they seek God's power through prayer to be sanctified from the flesh, the world, and Satan, who is constantly seeking to cause, perpetuate, or highlight such failings. The end result is that God's people are promised progressive victory over the flesh. So it always rightly starts with the individual. Each believer judges him or herself according to the measure and stature of Christ, who is the very image of God the Father. Then, individual believers gather, fellowship, and by example stir one another up to greater sanctification, holiness, love, patience, etc. However, the process does not stop there. Jesus commands his followers to go out to all the world to preach the good news and to be salt and light to a dying world. Next we read, quote, Jesus, by contrast, set off an empathy time bomb that obliterates difference, unquote. This statement appears to be put forward in an effort to juxtapose between Jesus, who is exclusively guided by, quote, empathy, unquote, and nothing else, and evangelicals or conservative Roman Catholic bishops who, quote, thrive on making distinctions, unquote, between, quote, their truth, unquote, and, quote, other people's failings, unquote. Now, I have already spent a great deal of time correcting the misnomer that God or Jesus was or is exclusively and solely defined and constrained by any one attribute. Yes, God, i.e. Jesus, has the attribute of love. Yes, Jesus has the attribute of empathy. But Jesus also has the equal and perfect attributes of justice, righteousness, holiness, mercy, grace, truth, all knowledge, all power, all sovereignty at all times. To have any one to exclusion is a denial of the remaining attributes. We may like, approve, or prefer some, and dislike others, but the deepest emotions, opinions, and preferences of the creation, i.e. man, 
does not at any time change God who is eternally, perfectly the Creator. For those of you who would like to know more about the love of God or the love versus hate and judgment, I would direct the listener to the episode entitled Questions About God's Love and a Biblical Perspective on Hate and Judgment. In order to simplify here, we could easily demonstrate the utter vacuous notion that Jesus never ever demonstrated anything other than his exclusive and sole attribute of, quote, empathy, unquote, and or, quote, love, unquote. Here are just a few examples of how Jesus never engaged in, quote, drawing distinctions, unquote, or failing to show, quote, empathy, unquote. Speaking to the scribes and Pharisees, Jesus said, quote, Ye blind guides, unquote. Matthew chapter 23, verse 16. Quote, Ye fools, unquote. Matthew chapter 23, verse 17. Quote, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, for you are like whited sepulchers, which indeed appear beautiful outward, but are within, full of dead men's bones in all uncleanness, unquote. Matthew chapter 23, verse 27. Quote, ye serpents, unquote. Matthew chapter 23, verse 33. Quote, ye generation of vipers, unquote. Matthew chapter 23, verse 33. Quote, woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye are as graves which appear not, and the men that walk over them are not aware of them. Unquote. Luke chapter 11, verse 44. And finally, quote, ye are of your father the devil. Unquote. John chapter 8, verse 44. As we look at these pronouncements from Jesus towards other human beings, if we examine them using a secular humanistic filter, we have to ask, how do any of these sayings portray Jesus as a person who is guided exclusively by empathy? If Jesus is only empathy, then we should expect Jesus to just overlook any perceived flaws that they had look at them with doleful, tear-filled eyes, and very emotionally say, quote, It's okay. I understand. You're doing the best you can. Unquote. How about love? If Jesus is only love and nothing else, then how could Jesus say these unloving, unkind, mean-sounding things? Again, examining this with a secular humanistic filter, we'd expect Jesus to ignore their failing and simply throw his arms around them and say, I love you, bro. What about the truth? If Jesus is on the same page as our author, then Jesus should know or believe that either there is no truth or that truth is a relative, subjective issue with no ultimate reality. If this is the case, what is he doing having the nerve to make unilateral statements which carry confident, unambiguous judgments about other people as if he knew the truth? 
This is only possible if there is an ultimate truth, and Jesus knows what that truth is. Likewise, failings. If there are no failings, or failings are subjective, then again, what is Jesus doing pretending that failings exist, or that there is a universal authority by which he can determine when a failing has occurred, and then pronouncing that failing with certitude? Finally, Jesus is here contradicting the author by committing the dread offense of drawing distinctions between his perceived truth and other people's failings. Apparently, Jesus simply has not achieved the level of sophistication that this author has. Either that or the author is completely wrong. Apparently, instead of taking care not to offend the author and obliterating differences, Jesus dropped a bomb which identified and illuminated differences based not upon some abstract subjective truth, but rather as the creator and sustainer of truth, Jesus was authoritatively in a position to proclaim truth and reality from eternity wherever and whenever necessary to mankind who is blind. Next, we have this glittering pearl of logical fallacy. Quote, Jesus' empathy bomb explodes every time a former evangelical puts love ahead of what the Bible says, unquote. So, let's examine this statement. Here, on the one hand, we can put the average Bible containing the Old and New Testaments on a table. We can look at it with its 66 books bound between two covers and say, this is the Bible. Everything inside is what, quote, the Bible says, unquote. Once we acknowledge and concede that we have the Bible in hand, which is God's word, we can then, according to the author, effectively push the Bible off the edge of the table and allow it to fall into the wastebasket. We can then proceed to replace the Bible, or anything it says, by putting a jar of whatever other container full of quote, love, unquote, in its place. The only problem is that if we disregard and eliminate what the Bible says, then what ultimate source of authority is left with which we can define what that jar full of, quote, love, unquote, looks like? If we get rid of what the Bible says, then how do we know who Jesus is or what attributes he has? If we don't have what the Bible says, then we have very little basis for even knowing that Jesus exists. If Jesus doesn't exist, or if we have no information from the Bible about his character, then how do we know whether he even has empathy or not? Without what the Bible says, we have no codified source for ultimate authority. Without the Bible, all we have is man's subjective, relative ideas about what each man or woman believes in their own heart as being true about love. 
If then that is the case, then my ideas about what love is are equally valid and true to what another person believes. There is no way to determine reality because there is no source for ultimate authority. The author then goes on to say, quote, It goes off every time Pope Francis puts inclusion ahead of dogma, unquote. The quote-unquote it, of course, is, quote, Jesus's time bomb, unquote, of quote-unquote love. Let's examine this statement carefully. Just to avoid unnecessary distraction, let's remove Pope Francis from the equation. Instead, let's reword the contention this way. Quote, it goes off every time the church puts inclusion ahead of dogma, unquote. In this analysis, it is critical for us to define what is meant when the author says, quote, inclusion, unquote, and, quote, dogma, unquote, and then compare these terms to what the Bible says about these concepts. Now, frankly, the problem is that if, as in the last comparison, we sweep what God and the Bible have to say about these terms off the table or anything else, then we have again removed any ultimate a source of authority for definition, and it is now every man for himself. Let's address dogmas first. Once again, if truth does not exist, or truth is completely relative without a reality, then no dogma can by definition exist. It is only if and when that truth exists that there is an ultimate authority for such that we can proceed to determine what is that truth compared to some other allegation of truth, which is in fact nothing more than someone's personal opinion held out dogmatically in the place of ultimate truth. So, if I accuse someone of being dogmatic about truth, I only have two options given the reality that there is an ultimate authority for truth. One, they are correctly reflecting and telling the truth according to that ultimate authority. Or, two, they are unintentionally or intentionally giving an incorrect opinion, which is what they believe to be representative of ultimate authority. Either way, in order to know which is or which is not, we would have to consult the source of ultimate authority in order to know what the reality is. Now, at this point, I would like to let you in on a little game that the secular humanists and atheists like to play. Both groups like to pretend that there is no universal source of authority for meaning, truth, beauty, significance, and reality when it comes to issues of morality. There really isn't a universal source of authority for anything. Everything that the secular humanists believe that they know must be known according to the terms that they, as finite humans, have assumed, agreed upon, or concluded as being true. Things which are not material and cannot be touched, tasted, felt, seen, or heard cannot be known because, according to them, they do not exist 
except perhaps by imagination. As a consequence, as long as people agree with what secular humanists and atheists say and believe, everything is okay. There is no dogma. It is only when someone comes along and says something or lives in defiance of them that the accusation of being dogmatic arises. But the truth is that if whatever I say, believe, or live like is in agreement with the ultimate source of authority, then I am saying, believing, and living the truth, regardless of how my confidence, tone, or assertive dialogue might be confused for being dogmatic. In this case, I am being dogmatically accurate and truthful. On the other hand, if I or a million people loudly scream something, believe with all their heart, and live proudly accordingly, they are still in error regardless of consensus or percentage if what they say, believe, and live disagrees with the ultimate source of authority. Thus, the end result is that in order to know what is or what is not truth, dogma, error, or reality, we must consult God's word as the source of ultimate authority and not man's relative subjective opinion corrupted by sin. This brings us to the subject of, quote, inclusion, unquote. Now, earlier we took a look at, in this episode at several statements that Jesus made to the scribes and Pharisees. In these pronouncements, Jesus called people, quote, blind guides, fools, whited sepulchers full of dead men's bones, serpents, vipers, hypocrites, and being of their father the devil, unquote. Once again, we have to use the author's humanistic filter and ask, how does saying any of these things to other people create an atmosphere of inclusion? If inclusion is the only attribute guiding Jesus' every decision and thought, then we would expect to find Jesus saying, well done, good and faithful servants, instead of these divisive statements. But let's look further, just to be sure. If we go to Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, we find this. Quote, Enter ye in at the straight gate. For wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. Because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto the life, and few there be that find it, unquote. Now, if Jesus' only attribute is, quote, inclusion, unquote, then why doesn't Jesus drop his, quote, unquote, love bomb or rent a front-load tractor to put in a four-lane highway so that everyone can be, quote, unquote, included to find life? How is allowing the gate to remain wide and the way broad leads to destruction consistent with Jesus having quote-unquote inclusion as his prime directive? Then we have John chapter 14 verse 6, quote, Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. 
no man cometh unto the Father but by me, unquote. Wow. Well, we have definitely have a bomb here, but it's not the one the author would pretend. Instead, this verse is a bomb that blows up almost all of what the author believes. First, Jesus dogmatically asserts that there is a universal source of truth and authority and reality. Next, Jesus has the audacity to dogmatically proclaim that he is the only truth and way by which any man can come to the Father. That means there is no other way. Well, wait a minute. If I don't agree, if I refuse, then that means that Jesus is saying, I'm not included. If Jesus is guided and motivated first and foremost by being quote-unquote inclusive, then we would expect him to say, whatever floats your boat and seems good in your eyes will get you to the Father. I'm sorry, but I'd like to insert myself into this discussion as the universal source of authority on this matter, but if I do, I won't be able to promote myself as an inclusive kind of guy, so just do whatever feels good. Okay, well, just for the unconvinced here, here's another in Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23, spoken again by Jesus. Quote, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Quote, not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works? And I will profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity, unquote. In these verses, Jesus has the nerve to speak with the epitome of dogma. Apparently, Jesus thinks he is more than a wandering, misguided, outdated philosopher begging to be accepted as a pastor in some megachurch. Not only does he speak as though he has the ultimate authority over truth, but he says that he's Lord. He is God, determining who does and doesn't get into heaven. He draws distinctions between those who will succeed in getting in and those who will fail and are not included. Apparently, Jesus' love bomb has gone off for those who made it into heaven. But in order to explain the fate of those who are told to depart, we now have to add the attributes of justice, righteousness, and holiness to Jesus' bomb. Perhaps more importantly, as a warning for all of us, including this author, what these verses highlight as an unavoidable certain historical reality is that on the great day of judgment, there will be many who sincerely thought that they knew who and what Jesus was. Many will even call him Lord. But the sad truth is that many will have only deceived themselves.
Thus, for the sake of eternity, it behooves us all to diligently and earnestly search not our own subjective relative humanistic minds beset by sin and error, but the ultimate source of authority, God's word, for who God reveals himself to be. This concludes this episode. Please join me again for part three. Now, if you have any questions about God, the Bible, or the Christian faith, I encourage you to send me an email at pastor underscore Yeshua at yahoo.com. That's P-A-S-T-O-R underscore Y-E-S-H-U-A at yahoo.com. Thank you for listening. Bye.